Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 153 of Forgotten Classics, continuing into Africa with H. Ryder Haggard and the People of the Mist. As before, I do not have a podcast highlight, but I was listening to an audiobook of Tony Hillerman's The Blessing Way. Now, this book was written in 1970, and when they came out, or very soon afterward, I read them as soon as they were being written. And I don't think I actually have even reread them since then. One read through seemed to be enough, and we got up to, oh, I don't know, a lot of books into the series, and I said, eh, I'm done with these now. But I was trying a different series about a Western sheriff in modern times, and I thought, you know, I'm looking for something that's more like Tony Hillerman. And then I thought, I wonder what those are like now. It's been so long. So I went ahead and found that the library had the audio of it. George Guidall reads it, and he does a really great job. Interestingly, there aren't a lot of these available on audio. They're available sometimes abridged. I don't need abridged, and these books are pretty short. I really don't understand that unless, I guess it was from the time when audio was a lot more expensive. Thank goodness we live in these cheap audio times, right? Anyway, I listened to that book, and oh my goodness, it was so exciting. I had not remembered the thriller aspect of it. All seemed very realistic to me, definitely all set in the Four Corners, the Navajo Reservation with Joe Leaphorn, who's the law and order policeman, and a friend of his who's an archaeologist who's out on a dig. So all of that is to say several things. One is to recommend that book. The other is to say... Hey, if there's a series that you haven't read for a long time, go back and try it again. You may find, like me, that you've forgotten a lot of it, and it's just as good the second time around. So, there you go. Try those books if you haven't, and if it's been a while, try them again. Now, on to our story. Wow. We have a great adventure starting up, and we also have... A great romance starting up. I hate you. I hate you too. Well, we're pretty sure that's going to turn out well later, according to formula. However, for right now, it makes it kind of uncomfortable when Leonard and Juana are near the same campfire. Let's find out what they have to do to get this show on the road and go get those rubies and why Juana needs to be there. Come on, let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 16 Misunderstandings For some days after the acrimonious conversation that has been reported, the relations between Leonard and Juana were not a little strained although the necessities of travel brought them into continual contact. Both felt that they had cause of complaint against the other, and both were at heart somewhat ashamed of the part which they had played. Leonard regretted ever having made the agreement with Soa, and Juana, 
now that she had cooled down a little, regretted having spoken as she did upon the subject. Her pride was offended, but after all, how could he know? Besides, he was an adventurer, and it was natural that he should make terms. Doubtless, also, his anxiety to win fortune had to do with the lady whose name was written in the prayer book. Perhaps this lady was only a maiden aunt, but a great desire seized Juana to know about her, and when such a wish enters the heart of woman, it is probable she will find a means to satisfy it. Having no one else to ask, Juana sounded Otter, with whom she was on friendly terms, only to find that the subject of Jane Beach did not interest the dwarf. He hazarded a remark, however, that doubtless she was one of the boss's wives when he lived in his big kraal over the water. This disgusted Juana somewhat, but the allusion to a big kraal excited the curiosity, of which she had a certain share, and very adroitly she questioned the dwarf concerning it. He rose to the fly without hesitation, and told her that his master had been one of the greatest men in the world, and one of the richest but that he lost his possessions through the wicked arts of foemen, and was come to this country to seek new ones. Indeed, Otter enlarged upon the theme, and anxious to extol his beloved chief's worth in the eyes of the shepherdess, it would not be too much to say that he drew upon his own imagination. Leonard, he declared, had owned country as wide as a horse could gallop across in a day, Moreover, he had two hundred tribesmen, heads of families, who fed upon oxen killed for them, twenty oxen a week, and ten principal wives had called him husband. Juana asked for the titles of the wives, whereon the undefeated otter gave them all kafir names, not neglecting to describe their lineage, personal charms, and the number and sex of their children. The tale took about two hours to tell, and after hearing it, Juana conceived a great respect for Otter. But she saw clearly that if she wished for reliable information, she must obtain it from Leonard himself. It was not until the last day of their journey that Juana found the opportunity she sought. The voyage had been most prosperous, and they expected to reach the ruined settlement on the morrow though whether or not they would find Mr. Rod there was a matter of anxious conjecture, especially to his daughter. Day after day they rode and sailed up the great river, camping at night upon its banks, which would have been pleasant had it not been for the mosquitoes. But all this while Leonard and Juana saw little of each other, though they met often enough. On this particular occasion, however, it chanced that they were journeying in the same boat alone, except for the rowers. Possibly Juana had contrived that it should be so, for as a general rule in pursuit of his policy of avoiding a disagreeable young person, Leonard travelled with Otter in the first boat, while Juana was accompanied by Francisco and Soa in the second. To the priest, indeed, she made herself very agreeable, perhaps to show Leonard how charming she could be when she chose. She conversed with him by the hour together as though he were a woman friend, and his melancholy eyes would lighten with pleasure at her talk. Indeed, Francisco had something of the feminine in his nature. His very gentleness was womanly, and his slight stature, delicate hands, and features heightened this impression. In face, he was not unlike Juana herself, and as time went on, the resemblance seemed to grow. 
Had he been arrayed in a woman's loose attire, it would have been easy to mistake one for the other in the dusk, although she was the taller of the two. The accident of his profession caused Juana to admit Francisco to an intimacy which she would have withheld from any other man. She forgot, or did not understand, that she was playing a dangerous game, that, after all, he was a man, and that the heart of a man beat beneath his cassock. Nobody could be more charming in her manner or more subtle in her mind than Juana, yet day by day she did not hesitate to display all her strength before the unfortunate young priest, which, in addition to her beauty, made her somewhat irresistible, at any rate on the Zambezi. Friendship and ignorance of the world were doubtless at the bottom of this reprehensible conduct. But it is also possible that unconscious pique had something to do with it. She was determined to show Leonard that she was not always a disagreeable person whom it was well to avoid, or at least that others did not think so. That all these airs and graces might have a tragic effect upon Francisco never occurred to her till too late. Well, for once the order of things was changed. Leonard and Juana sat side by side in the first boat. The evening was lovely. They glided slowly by the reed-fringed bank, watching the long lights play upon the surface of the lonely river, listening to the whistling wings of the countless wildfowl overhead, and counting the herds of various game that roamed upon the plains beyond. For a while neither of them spoke much. Occasionally Juana would call her companion's attention to some waterfowl or to a great fish darting from the oars, and he would answer by a word or a nod. His heart was wroth with the girl, as Otter would have said. He wondered why she had come with him. Because she was tired of the priest, perhaps. He wished her away, and yet he would have been sorry enough had she gone. For her part, Juana desired to make him speak, and did not know how to break through his moody silence. Suddenly she leaned back in the boat, and began to sing in a rich contralto voice that moved him. He had never heard her sing before, had never heard any good singing for many years indeed, and he was fond of singing. The song she sang was a Portuguese love song, very tender and passionate, addressed by a bereaved lover to his dead mistress, and she put much expression into it. Presently she ceased, and he noticed that her beautiful eyes were full of tears. So she could feel. That is too sad she said with a little laugh, and then burst into a kaffir boat song, of which the settlement natives, joyous in the prospect of once more seeing their home, took up the chorus gleefully. Presently she wearied of the boat chant. I am tiring you, she said. I dare say that you do not care for singing. On the contrary, Miss Rod, I am very fond of it. Your voice is good, if you will allow me to say so. And it has been trained. I do not quite understand how you have had the opportunity to learn so many things. Music, for instance. I suppose, Mr. Outram, you think I should be a sort of savage by rights. But as a matter of fact, although we have lived on the Zambezi, I have had some chances. There is always a certain amount of trade on the river, by means of which we often obtain books and other things, and are brought into occasional contact with European merchants, travelers, and missionaries. Then my father is a gently-born and well-educated man, though circumstances have caused him to spend his life in these wild places. 
He was a scholar in his day, and he has taught me a good deal, and I have picked up more by reading. Also, for nearly three years I was at a good school in Durban, and did my best to improve myself there. I did not wish to grow up wild because I lived among wild people. Indeed, that explains the miracle. And do you like living among savages? I have liked it well enough hitherto, but this last adventure has sickened me. Oh, it was dreadful. Had I not been very strong, I could never have endured it. A nervous woman would have been driven mad. Yes, I have liked it well enough. I have always looked upon it as a preparation for life. I think that the society of nature is the best education for the society of man, since until you understand and are in sympathy with the one, you cannot really understand the other. Now I should like to go to Europe and see the world and its civilizations, for I know from what stuff they were evolved. But perhaps I never shall. At any rate, I have to find my dear father first. And she sighed. Leonard made no answer. He was thinking. And you, Mr. Outram, do you care for this life? I, he exclaimed bitterly. Like yourself, Miss Rod, I am the victim of circumstances and must make the best of them. As I told you, I am a penniless adventurer seeking my fortune in the rough places of the earth. Of course, I might earn a livelihood in England, but that is of no use to me. I must win wealth and a great deal of it. What is the good? she said. Is there any object in wearing out one's life by trying to grow rich? That depends. I have an object, one which I have sworn to fulfill. She looked at him inquiringly. Miss Rod, I will tell you. My brother, who died of fever some weeks ago, and I were the last male survivors of a very ancient house. We were born to great prospects, or at least he was, but owing to the conduct of our father, everything was lost to us, and the old house, which had been ours for centuries, went to the hammer. That was some seven years ago, when I was a man of three and twenty. We swore that we would try to retrieve those fortunes, not for ourselves so much, but for the sake of the family, and came to Africa to do it. My brother is dead, but I inherit the oath and continue the quest, however hopeless it may be. And now perhaps you will understand why I signed a certain document? Yes, she said. I understand now. It is a strange history. But tell me, have you no relations left? One, I believe, if she still lives. A maiden aunt, my mother's sister. Is she Jane Beach? She asked quickly. Forgive me, but I saw that name in the prayer book. No, he said. She is not Jane Beach. Juana hesitated, then curiosity, and perhaps other feelings, overcame her, and she asked straight out, Who is Jane Beach? Leonard looked at Juana and remembered all that he had suffered at her hands. It was impertinent of her to ask such a question, but since she chose to do so, she should have an answer. Doubtless she supposed that he was in love with herself. Doubtless her conduct was premeditated and aimed at the repression of his hopes. He would show her that there were other women in the world, and that one of them, at any rate, had not thought so poorly of him. 
It was foolish conduct on his part, but then people suffering under unmerited snubs, neglect, and mockery at the hands of a lady they admire are apt to lose their judgment and do foolish things. So he answered, Jane Beach is the lady to whom I was engaged. I guessed it, she replied with a smile and a shiver. I guessed it when I saw that you always carried the prayer book about with you. You forget, Miss Rod, that the prayer book contains an agreement which might have become valuable. Juana took no heed of his sarcasm. She was too intent on other thoughts. And are you engaged to her now? No, I suppose not. Her father broke off the match when we lost our fortunes. She must have been very sorry. Yes, she was very sorry. How interesting of me. You must not think me curious, Mr. Outram, but I have never come across a love affair. That is a white love affair. Out of a novel. Of course, she often writes to you? I have never heard from her since I left England. Indeed. Surely she might have written or sent a message? I suppose that her father forbade it. Leonard answered. But in his heart he also thought that Jane might have written or sent a message— and could well guess why none had come. Ah, her father, tell me, was she very beautiful? She was the loveliest woman that I ever saw, except the one who is sitting at my side, he added to himself. And do you love her very much? Yes, I loved her very much. If Juana heard the change of tense, she took no note of it. It was such a little thing. Only one letter. And yet what a vast gulf there is between love and loved. It is measureless. Still, most people have crossed it in their lives, some of them more than once. He told her the exact truth. But after a woman's fashion, she added to the truth. He said that he had loved Jane Beach, and she did not doubt that he still loved her more than ever. How was she to know that the image of this faraway and hateful Jane was fading from his mind, to be replaced by that of a certain present Juana? She took it all for granted and filled in the details with a liberal hand and in high colors. Juana took it all for granted. Again she shivered and her lips turned gray with pain. She understood now that she had loved him ever since the night when they first met in the slave camp. It was her love, as yet unrecognized, which, transforming her, had caused her to behave so badly. It had been dreadful to her to think that she should be thrust upon this man in a mock marriage. It was worse to know that he had entered on her rescue not for her own sake, but in the hope of winning wealth. In the moment of her loss, Juana learned for the first time what she had gained. She had played and lost, and she could never throw those dice again. It was begun and finished. So Juana thought and felt. A little more experience of the world might have taught her differently. But she had no experience, and in such novels as she had read, the hero seldom varied in the pursuit of his first love or turned to look upon another. Ah, if all heroes and heroines acted up to this golden rule, what an uncommonly dull world it would be. Juana gathered her energies and spoke in a low, steady voice. Mr. Outram, she said, 
I am so much obliged to you for telling me all this. It interests me a great deal, and I earnestly hope that Soa's tale of treasure will turn out to be true, and that you may win it by my help. It will be a slight return for all that you have done for me. Yes, I hope that you will win it and buy back your home, and after your years of toil and danger live there in honor and happiness and love, as you deserve to do. And now I ask you to forgive me my behavior, my rudeness, and my bitter speeches. It has been shameful, I know. Perhaps you will make some excuse for me when you remember all that I have gone through. My nerves were shaken. I was not myself. I acted like a half-wild minx. There. That is all. As she spoke, Juana began to draw the signet ring from her left hand, but she never completed the act. It was his gift to her, the only outward link between her and the man whom she had lost. Why should she part with it? It reminded her of so much. She knew now that this mock marriage was in a sense a true one, that is, so far as she was concerned, for from that hour she had indeed given her spirit into his keeping, not herself, but her better half and her love, and those solemn words over her in that dreadful place and time had consecrated the gift. It was nothing. It meant nothing. Yet on her it should be binding, though not on him. Yes, all her life she would remain as true to him in mind and act as though she had indeed become his wife on that night of fear. To do so would be her only happiness, she thought though it is strange that in her sorrow she should turn for comfort to this very event, the mere mention of which had moved her to scorn and bitterness. But so it was, and so let it be. Leonard saw the look upon her face. He had never seen anything quite like it before. With astonishment he heard her gentle words, and something of the meaning of the look and words came home to him. At any rate, he understood that she was suffering. She was changed in his sight. He no longer felt bitter toward her. He loved her. Might it not be that she also loved him, and that here was a key to her strange conduct? Once and for all he would settle the matter. He would tell her that Jane Beach had ceased to be more than a tender memory to him, and that she had become all. Juana he said, addressing her by her Christian name for the first time. But there, as it was fated, the sentence began and ended, for at that moment a canoe shot alongside of them, and Francisco's voice was heard hailing them through a fog. Peter says that you have passed the camping place, Signora. He did not stop you because he thought that you knew it well. It was the mist, Father, Juana answered with a little laugh. We have lost ourselves in a mist. A few minutes, and they were on the bank, and Leonard's declaration remained unspoken. Nor did he make any attempt to renew it. It seemed to him that Juana had built a wall between them which he could not climb. From that evening forward, her whole attitude toward him changed. She no longer angered him by bitter words. Indeed, she was gentleness itself, and nothing could be kindlier or more friendly and open than her manner. But there it began and ended. Once or twice, indeed, he attempted some small advance, with the result that instantly she seemed to freeze, to become cold and hard as marble. 
He could not understand her. He feared her somewhat, and his pride took alarm. At the least he could keep his feelings to himself. He need not expose them to be trampled upon by this incomprehensible girl. So, although they were destined to live side by side for months, rarely out of each other's sight or thoughts, he went his way, and she went hers. But the past and secret trouble left its mark on both. Leonard became sterner, more silent, watchful, and suspicious. Juana grew suddenly from a girl into a woman of presence and great natural dignity. She did not often laugh during those months, as had been her wont. She only smiled, sadly enough, at times. Her thoughts would not let her laugh, for they were of what her life might have been, had no such person as Jane Beach existed, and of what it must be, because of Jane Beach. Indeed, this unknown Jane took a great hold of her mind. She haunted her. Juana pictured her in a dozen different shapes of beauty, endowed with many varying charms, and hated each phantasm worse than the last. Still, for a while she would set it up as a rival and try to outmatch its particular fancied grace or loveliness, a strange form of jealousy, which at length led Otter to remark that the shepherdess was not one woman but twenty women, and therefore bewitched and to be avoided. But these fits only took her from time to time. For the most part she moved among them a grave and somewhat stately young lady, careful of many things, fresh and lovely to look upon, a mystery to her white companions, and to the natives little short of a goddess. But wherever Juana moved, two shadows went with her, her secret passion, and the variable image of that far-off English lady who had robbed her of its fruit. Chapter 17 The Death of Mavum One more day's journeying brought the party to the ruined settlement, which they found in much the same condition as the Arabs had left it a few weeks before. Fortunately, the destruction was not nearly so great as it appeared. The inside of the house, indeed, was burnt out, but its walls still remained intact. Also, many of the huts of the natives were still standing. Messengers who left the canoes at dawn had spread the news of the rescue and return of the shepherdess among the people of the neighboring kraals, who flocked by scores to the landing place. With these were at least a hundred of Mr. Rod's own people, who had escaped the clutches of the slave traders by hiding, absence, and various other accidents, and now returned to greet his daughter and their own relatives as they would have greeted one risen from the grave. Indeed, the welcome accorded to Juana was most touching. Men, women, and children ran to her, the men saluting her with guttural voices and uplifted arms, the women and children gesticulating, chattering, and kissing her dress and hand. Waving them aside impatiently, Juana asked the men if anything had been seen or heard of her father. They answered, No. Some of their number had started up the river to search for him on the same day when she was captured, but they had not returned, and no tidings had come from them or him. Do not be alarmed, said Leonard, seeing the distress and anxiety written on her face. Doubtless he has gone further than he anticipated, and the men have not been able to find him. I fear that something has happened to him, she answered. He should have been back by now. He promised to, to return within the fortnight. 
By this time, the story of the capture and destruction of the slave camp was spread among the people by the rescued men, and the excitement rose to its height. Otter, seeing a favorable opportunity to trumpet his master's fame, swaggered to and fro through the crowd, shaking a spear and chanting Leonard's praises after the Zulu fashion. Wow, he said. Wow, look at him, ye people, and be astonished. Look at him, the white elephant, and hear his deeds. In the night he fell upon them. He fell upon them, the armed men in a fenced place. He did it alone. No one helped him but a black monkey and a woman with a shaking hand. He beguiled them with a tongue of honey. He smote them with a spear of iron. He won this shepherdess from the midst of them to be a wife to him. He satisfied the yellow devil. He satisfied him with gold. The praying man prayed over them. Then strife arose. Their greatest warrior gave him battle. He broke him with his fist. Then the monkey played his tricks, and his shaking hand made a great noise, a noise of thunder. They fell dead. They fell in heaps. The fire roared behind them. In front of them, the bullets hailed. They cried like women, but the fire stayed not. It licked up their strength. Ashes are all that is left of them. They are dead, the armed men. No more shall they bring desolation. This day of slavery is gone by. Who did it? He did it, the terrible lion, the black-maned lion with the white face. He gave the slavers to the sword. He doomed their captain to the death. He loosened the irons of the captives. Now they shall eat the bread of freedom. Praise him, ye people, who broke the strength of the oppressor. Praise him, the shepherd of the shepherdess, who led her from the house of the wicked. Praise him, ye children of Mavum, in whose hands are death and life. No such deeds have been told of in the land. Praise him, the deliverer, who gives you back your children. I praise him, said Juana, who was standing by. Praise him, children of my father, since but for him none of us would see the light today. At this juncture, Leonard himself arrived upon the scene just in time to hear Juana's words. All the people of the settlement took up the cry, and hundreds of other natives collected there joined in it. They rushed toward him, shouting, Praise to thee, shepherd of the shepherdess! Praise to thee, deliverer! Then Leonard, in a fury, caught hold of Otter, vowing that if he dared to say another word, he would instantly break his neck, and the tumult ceased. But from that day forward, he was known among the natives as the Deliverer, and by no other name. That evening, as Leonard, Juana, and the priest sat at meat within the walls of the settlement house, with the plunder of the slave camp piled around them, talking anxiously of the fate of Mr. Rod and wondering if anything could be done to discover his whereabouts, they heard a stir among the natives without. At this moment, Otter rushed in, crying, Mavum has come! Instantly, they sprang to their feet and ran outside the house, headed by Juana. There, borne on the shoulders of six travel-worn men and followed by a crowd of natives, they saw a litter, upon which lay the figure of a man covered with blankets. Oh, he is dead, said Juana, stopping suddenly and pressing her hands to her heart. 
For a moment, Leonard thought that she was right. Before he could speak, however, they heard a feeble voice calling to the men who carried the litter to be more careful in their movements. And once more, Juana sprang forward, crying, Father! Father! Then the bearers brought their burden into the house and set it down upon the floor. Leonard, looking, saw before him a tall and handsome man of about fifty years of age, and saw also by many unmistakable signs that he was at the point of death. Juana! gasped her father. Is that you? Then you have escaped? Thank God. Now I can die happy. It would serve little purpose to set out in detail the broken conversation which followed, but by degrees Leonard learnt the story. It seemed that Mr. Rod was disappointed in his purpose of purchasing the hoard of ivory which he went out to seek and, unwilling to return empty-handed, pushed on up the river with the hope of obtaining more. In this he failed also, and had just begun his homeward journey when he was met by the party which Soa dispatched, and heard the terrible tidings of the abduction of his daughter by Pereira. It was nightfall when the messengers arrived, and too dark to travel. For a while Mr. Rod sat brooding over the news of this crushing disaster, perhaps the most fearful that could come to a father's ears. Then he did what he was but too prone to do, flew for refuge to the bottle. When he had drunk enough to destroy his judgment, he rose and insisted upon continuing their march through the inky darkness of the night. In vain did his men remonstrate, saying the road was rocky and full of danger. He would take no denial. Indeed, he vowed that if they refused to come, he would shoot them. So they started, Mr. Rod leading the way, while his people stumbled after him through trees and over rocks as best they might. The march was not a long one, however, for presently the men heard an oath and a crash, and their master vanished, nor could they find him till the dawn came to give them light. Then they discovered that they had halted upon the edge of a small but precipitous cliff, and at the bottom of the donga lay Mavum, not dead indeed, but senseless, and with three ribs and his right ankle broken. For some days they nursed him there, till at length he decided upon being carried forward in a litter. So notwithstanding his sufferings, which were intense, they bore him homewards by short stages, till ultimately they reached the settlement. That night Leonard examined Mr. Rod's injuries, and found that they were fatal. Indeed, mortification had already set in about the region of the broken ribs. Still, he lived a while. On the following morning, the dying man sent for Leonard. Entering the room, he found him lying on the floor, his head supported in his daughter's lap, while the priest Francisco prayed beside him. He suffered no pain now, for when mortification begins, pain passes, and his mind was quite clear. Mr. Outram, he said, I have learnt all the story of the taking of the slave camp and your rescue of my daughter. It was the pluckiest thing that ever I heard of, and I only wish I had been there to help in it. Don't speak of it, said Leonard. Perhaps you have heard also that I did it for a consideration. Yes, they told me that too, and small blame to you. If only that old fool Soa had let me into the secret of those rubies, I would have had a try for them years ago, as of course you will when I am gone. Well, I hope that you may get them. But I have no time to talk of rubies, for death has caught me at last, through my own fault as usual. If you ever take a drop, Altram, be warned by me and give it up. But you don't look as if you did. 
You look as I used to before I learnt to tackle a bottle of rum at a sitting. Now, listen, comrade, I am in a hole, not about myself, for that must have come sooner or later, and it does not much matter when the world is rid of a useless fellow like me. But about my girl here, what is to become of her? I have not got a cent. Those cursed slavers have cleared me out, and she has no friend. How should she have when I have been thirty years away from England? Look, here, I'm going to do the only thing I can do. I'm going to leave my daughter in your charge. Though it is rough on you, and as you deal with her, so may heaven deal with you. I understand there was some ceremony of marriage between you down yonder. I don't know how you take that, either of you, or how far the matter will go when I am dead. But if it goes any way at all, I trust to your honor as an English gentleman to repeat that ceremony the first time you come to a civilized country. If you do not care for each other, however, then Juana must shift, as other women have to do, poor things. She can look after herself, and I suppose her face will help her to a husband sometime. There is one thing. Though she hasn't a pound, she is the best girl that ever stepped, and of as good blood as you can be. There is no older family than the Rods in Lincolnshire, and she is the last of them that I know of. Her mother was well-born, although she was a Portuguese. And now, do you accept the trust? I would gladly, answered Leonard. But how can I? I propose to go after these rubies. Would it not be better that Father Francisco here should take your daughter to the coast? I have a little money which is at her disposal. No, answered the dying man with energy. I will only trust her to you. If you want to search for these rubies, and you would be a fool not to, she must accompany you. That is all. I know that you will look after her, and if the worst comes to the worst, she has a medicine to protect herself with, the same that she so nearly used in the slave camp. Now, what do you say? Leonard thought for a moment while the dying man watched his face anxiously. It is a heavy responsibility, he said, and the circumstances make it an awkward one. But I will take care of her as though she were my wife, or my daughter. Thank you for that, answered Rod. I believe you, and as to the relationship, you will settle that for yourselves. And now, goodbye. I like you. I wish we had known one another before I got into trouble at home, became a Zambezi trader, and a drunkard. Leonard took the hand which Mr. Rod lifted with a visible effort, and when he released it, it fell heavily like the hand of a dead man. Then, as he turned to go, he glanced at Juana's face, but could make nothing of it, for it was as the face of a sphinx. There the girl sat, her back resting against the wall, her dying father's head pillowed upon her knee, motionless as if carved in stone. She was staring straight before her with eyes wide open and curved lips set apart, as though she were about to speak and suddenly had been stricken to silence. So still was she that Leonard could scarcely note any movement of her breast. Even her eyelids had ceased to quiver, and the very pallor of her face seemed fixed like that of a waxen image. He wondered what she was thinking of. But even had she been willing to bear her thoughts to him, it is doubtful whether she could have made them intelligible. Her mind was confused, but two things struggled one against the other within it, the sense of loss and the sense of shame. Her father, whom, notwithstanding his faults, she loved dearly, 
who indeed had been her companion, her teacher, her playmate, and her friend, the dearest she had known, lay dying before her eyes, and with his last breath he consigned her to the care of the man whom she loved, and from whom, as she believed, she was forever separated. Would there then be no end to the obligations under which she labored at the hands of this stranger who had suddenly taken possession of her life? And what fate was on her that she should thus be forced into false positions whence there was no escape? Did she wish to escape even? Juana knew not. But as she sat there with a sphinx-like face, trouble and doubt and many another fear and feeling took so firm a hold of her that at length her mind, bewildered with its own tumult, lost its grip of present realities and sought refuge in dreams which he could not disentangle. No wonder, then, that Leonard failed to guess her thoughts as she watched him go from the deathbed. Mr. Rod died peacefully that evening, and on the following afternoon they buried him, Francisco performing the service. Three more days passed before Leonard had any conversation with Juana, who moved about the place pale, self-contained, and silent. Nor would he have spoken to her then had she not taken the initiative. "'Mr. Outram,' she said, "'when do you propose to start upon this journey?' Really, I do not know. I am not sure that I shall start at all. It depends upon you. You see, I am responsible for you now, and I can scarcely reconcile it with my conscience to take you on such a wild goose chase. Please do not talk like that, she answered. If it will simplify matters, I may as well tell you at once that I have made up my mind to go. <laughs> you cannot go unless I go too, he answered, smiling. "'You are wrong there,' Juana answered defiantly. "'I can, and what is more, I will, and so I shall guide me. "'It is you who cannot go without me. "'That is, if Soa tells the truth. "'For good or evil we are yoked together in this matter, Mr. Outram, "'so it is useless for us to try to pull different ways. "'Before he died, my dear father told you his views plainly, "'and even if there were no other considerations involved,' such as that of the agreement, for whatever you may think to the contrary, women have some sense of honor, Mr. Outram. I would not disregard his wishes. Besides, what else are we to do? We are both adventurers now, and both penniless, or pretty nearly so. Perhaps if we succeed in finding this treasure, and it is sufficiently large, you will be generous and give me a share of it, say, five per cent, on which to support my declining years." and she turned and left him. Beginning to show temper again, said Leonard to himself, I will ask Francisco what he thinks of it. Of late, things had gone a little better between Leonard and the priest. Not that the former had, as yet, any complete confidence in the latter. Still, he understood now that Francisco was a man of honest mind and gentle instincts, and naturally in this dilemma he turned to seek for counsel to his only white companion. Francisco listened to the story quietly. Indeed, for the most part, it was already known to him. Well, he said when Leonard had finished, I suppose that you must go. The Signora Juana is not a young lady to change her mind when once she has made it up. And if you were to refuse to start, mark my words, she would make the expedition by herself, or try to do so. 
As to this story of treasure and the possibility of winning it, I can only say that it seems strange enough to be true, and that the undertaking is so impracticable that it will probably be successfully accomplished. Hmm, said Leonard. Sounds a little paradoxical, but after that slave camp business, like you, I am inclined to believe in paradoxes. And now, father, what do you propose to do? I? To accompany you, of course, if you will allow me. I am a priest, and will play the part of chaperone if I can do nothing else, he added with a smile. Leonard whistled and asked, Why on earth do you mix yourself up in such a doubtful business? You have all your life before you. You are able and may make a career for yourself in religion. There is nothing for you to gain by this journey. On the contrary, it may bring you death, or, he added with meaning, sorrow which cannot be forgotten. My life and death are in the hand of God, the priest answered humbly. He appointed the beginning, and he will appoint the end. As for that sorrow which cannot be forgotten, what if it is already with me? And he touched his breast and looked up. The eyes of the two men met, and they understood each other. Why don't you go away and try to forget her, said Leonard. The speech was blunt, but Francisco did not resent it. I do not go, he answered, because it would be useless. So far as I am concerned, the mischief is done. For her there is none to fear. While I stay, it is possible that I may be able to do her some service, feeble as I am. I have sinned a great sin, but she does not know and will never know it while I live, for you are a man of honor and will tell her nothing, and she has no eyes to see. What am I to her? I am a priest, no man. I am like a woman friend, and as such she is fond of me. No... I have sinned against heaven, against myself and her and you. Alas, who could help it? She was like an angel in that inferno, so kind, so sweet, so lovely, and the heart is evil. Why do you say that you have sinned against me, Francisco? As to the rules of your church, I have my own opinion of them. Still, there they are, and perhaps they prick your conscience. But what harm have you done me? I told you, he answered, on the second night after the slave camp was burnt, that I believed you to be man and wife. I believe it yet. And have I not sinned doubly, therefore, in worshipping a woman who is wedded? Still I pray that as you are one before heaven and the church, so you may become one in heart and deed. And when this is so, as I think it will be, cherish her, Altram for there is no such woman in the world, and for you she will turn the earth to heaven. She might turn it to the other place. Such things have happened, said Leonard moodily. Then he stretched out his arm and grasped the priest's delicate hand. You are a true gentleman, he added, and I am a fool. I saw something of all this, and I suspected you. As for the marriage, there is none, and the lady cares nothing for me. If anything, she dislikes me, and I do not wonder at it. Most women would under the circumstances. But whatever befalls, I honor you, and always shall honor you. I must go this journey. It is laid on me that I should, and she insists upon going also. <laughs> More from perversity than for any other reason, I fancy. So, you are coming too. 
Well, we will do our best to protect her, both of us, and the future must look to itself. Thank you for your words, Francisco answered gently, and turned away, understanding that Leonard thought himself his companion in misfortune. When the father had gone, Leonard stood for a while, musing upon the curiously tangled web in which he found himself involved. Here he was, committed to a strange and dangerous enterprise. Nor was this all, for about him were other complications, totally different from those which might be expected in connection with such a medieval adventure, complications which, though they are frequent enough in the civilized life of men, were scarcely to be looked for in the wilds of Africa and amidst savages. Among his companions were his ward, who chanced also to be the lady whom he loved and desired to make his wife, but who, as he thought, cared nothing for him and a priest, who was enamored platonically of the same lady, and yet wished, with rare self-sacrifice, to bring about her union with another man. Here were materials enough for a romance, leaving the journey and the fabled treasure out of it. Only then the scene should be laid elsewhere. Leonard laughed aloud as he thought of these things. It was so curious that all this should be heaped upon him at once, so inartistic, and yet so like life, in which the great events are frequently crowded together without sense of distance or proportion. But even as he laughed, he remembered that this was no joking matter for anybody concerned, unless it were Juana. Alas, she was already more to him than any treasure, and, as he thought, less attainable. Well, there it was. He accepted it as it stood. She had entered into his life, whether for good or evil, remained to be seen. He had no desire to repeat the experiment of his youth, to wear out his heart and exhaust himself in efforts to attain happiness, which might, after all, turn to wormwood on his lips. This time, things should take their chance. The business of life remained to him, and he would follow it, for that is the mission of man. Its happiness must look to itself, for that is the gift of heaven." after which it is useless to seek and to strive. Meantime, he could find time to pity Francisco, the priest with so noble a heart. Next stop, more adventure. I have to say, I really enjoyed this section, especially a couple of moments where Juana is telling Francisco, it was the mist. We have lost ourselves in a mist. So not only will they be seeking out the people of the mist who are Soa's people, but they themselves are people of the mist. They are kind of lost, groping, can't get oriented, can't see things clearly. And I didn't expect that little hint, although it was pretty obvious, but still... <laughs> more than I expected H. Ryder Haggard to have in mind. So I did like that. I also really loved all these real standard romance tropes that are in here, like Juana going, oh, wait, now I know I love him. Oh my goodness. I guess I'll just have to live the rest of my life devoted to him, never marrying, hopelessly in love. Yeah, nothing typical about that. And the author's comment that in the novels that Juana had read, everybody remains constant to their first love. 
she obviously hadn't come along far enough to realize, oh no, first you start off hating, then you go to the loving. And um, so they're in this really exciting world where they don't act like romance novels, as we're told. (laughs) I'm cracking up. He's really making me laugh here. Because, you know, it's exactly like a romance novel. So at any rate, we now have some inner motivation for everyone. We now also have seen the last obstacle to Juana's going for the people of the mist taken away. Mavum, her father, has died. And I was listening to that while I was proofing it, and suddenly I flashed on Star Wars, where Luke comes back from finding Obi-Wan Kenobi and his skeletons of his aunt and uncle are there. Whoop, moment of death. Now he's free to go. <laughs> and I went, oh yeah, okay, got it. Nothing tying her down. Except a stubborn love for Leonard. And that will keep her right by his side. So I hope everybody is enjoying this as much as I am. Obviously, we are going to continue into Africa and into adventure next time. Because what else are we going to do? We got to find those dang people of the mist and see what Soa's deal is. I don't really trust her. Do you really trust her? None of us really trust her. Let's face it. Unlike Otter, who is possibly the rival for my husband's hand, I love Otter so much. In fact, I love Otter so much that when the author will say, Leonard talked to Francisco because he was the only other white person around he could ask about this, I keep thinking, Otter has been giving the best advice of everybody in the book. Why aren't you talking to Otter? Don't worry about anything else. Just ask Otter what he thinks. So yeah, I just have a little of a fan crush. Now in other news... The episode of SFF Audio that I mentioned a while back, The Hound of the Baskervilles, is up. So if you want to hear some discussion about it, which I greatly enjoyed having and listening to again, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Also, I just want to say I am listening to a Freakonomics episode that is, oh, maybe three back from the newest one. It's all about Bitcoins. Now, they say there are two kinds of people when it comes to Bitcoins. There are the people who understand Bitcoins and either love or hate them. And then there is the larger percent of the population, the people who don't know and don't care. Uh, That's me. (laughs) But I thought it would be interesting to hear them talk about, because the Freakonomics guys are really good at explaining things. If you're interested in that, and are like me, you don't really know about it, and you might care for future news stories, head on over to Freakonomics and look for that episode. Oh, and Heather Ordover at Craftlit has been working on another book, but it's not about knitting. Well, it's kind of about knitting. It's called Cognitive Anchoring, and she's been blogging about it since January in one of these I'm going to blog while I write sort of thing. So people have been able to get to, I don't know, I would call them episodes, but they're blog posts or chapter pieces or whatever a month. And evidently it's going to be published in September. Now, when I get a book, I like to read the whole book. I don't want to just get a part of it other than, of course, in a podcast, that's different. 
And also, just to be fair, I had no idea about this because, as I said, I haven't really been listening to podcasts very much lately, and Craftlet is one that went by the wayside because I said, well, I can listen to North and South, which is what she's been podcasting all at once. I don't have to listen to it piece by piece. So it turns out I got an email from her, and by not listening piece by piece, I missed this big piece of news. Anyway, cognitive anchoring is this idea that if you're listening to something like a class lecture or, I don't know, a podcast or whatever, and you're doing something with your hands like knitting or doodling or mm, things like that, woodworking possibly, if it's not too complicated, as long as it's not so complicated that you have to sit and really think about what you're doing you are going to retain about 30% more of what you hear than if you were just sitting there listening, which is going to turn us all into a nation of doodlers. I have this feeling, (laughs) but anyway, so uh, take that everybody who ever wondered what was going on when I sat there knitting through a meeting. Now, to be fair, these meetings have been things where I was trying to get myself not to speak up and be kind of obnoxious, which I can do. I'm going to admit it, but Still, I would focus on the knitting, but be listening intently. And that's kind of what Heather's talking about here. She's looking at some of the science. She's making it accessible to us in the way that she does so well. So anyway, I will put a link to her blog and you can go look at that too. And I think that's it. It's got to be it. It's all I can think of anyway. So. The weather's warm. Yeah, it's Texas and it's the end of April. Of course, the weather's warm. So Tom and I have been eating out on the patio, which we have not done for a really long time, but we cleaned off this plastic table that we have out there for which we have no chairs. So we carry our solid dining room chairs out there and then we sit and eat. And it's something that I forget about doing. And every time we do, it's like taking a little vacation or eating at a little restaurant where you're out on the patio. So do something like that. Do something that's in your routine because we all have to eat dinner together. But instead of sitting in the same place or watching TV or whatever it is that you do. Yes, I deplore watching TV while we eat, but guess what? We do it anyway, since there's just the two of us now and we work together. Oops, off topic again. But anyway, do something different. It's funny how it kind of peps your day up. I've discovered that about the dance lessons, as I mentioned, and we've finished the second session of lessons. So we will start the next session soon next week and find out what new dances we're going to learn, which is not nearly as anxiety inducing as it used to be. And now we're having dinner occasionally out on the patio. This is crazy change. What can I say? Give yourself a little change like that. Shake it up just a little. See what else happens. But do not stop coming by to listen. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be reading this book out loud. And as we all know, I'm having a great time doing it. So keep listening. We'll all have a great time together. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.